This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. What if there's another vaccine out there? approved officially by the FDA and lots of success that could protect you from some of the worst effects of COVID. Would you take it if uh, you said yes? Go and get your flu shot. We'll explain that one. Pfizer's now talking with U.S. officials about a possible third dose of its COVID vaccine. This comes as one country is now offering that booster shot to certain groups of people. And if you're going back to work, maybe you're not thrilled about the commute, but it turns out commutes might be good for you overall. Let's uh, begin with COVID-19 and flu shots. With us now is Dr. Davinder Singh, professor of clinical surgery at the University of Miami. He's co-author of a big study on the flu shot and how it can protect against severe COVID. Doctor, tell us what the findings mean. So we also were a little bit surprised by these findings to discover that uh, the flu jab may actually confer some protection from severe COVID disease. Uh, In order to get to that uh, conclusion, what we did is analyze a large uh, network of electronic medical records known as Trinetics. And this is a de-identified network of millions of electronic medical records that also has a suite of analytic software associated with it, and we're able to create groups and compare uh, and ask questions. And so in our case, we decided to uh, create two groups of patients that were de-identified using Trinetics. And we had 30,000 patients in one arm and 30,000 patients in the other, and we matched them carefully on many factors like age, race, sex, obesity, diabetes, some other lifestyles, and, uh, and then the factor that we tested was whether or not they had a flu shot six months to six weeks prior to a positive COVID diagnosis. And what we discovered when comparing that is the group that had the flu shot prior to a positive COVID diagnosis ultimately had less severe symptoms of COVID compared to the group that did not. Okay, so you tried to control for all the other factors because there's, you know, a host of things that maybe could, could affect this. But if it is the shot, do we know what the mechanism is and why, why it would happen well, that way? Great. Yeah, that, that is the, you know, million-dollar question. We don't have the exact scientific answer uh, nailed down yet, uh, and frankly, it's, it's, it's unknown. One thing to mention is that we strongly recommend taking the real COVID vaccine if you have access to it and if it's available. We are not suggesting that the flu vaccine is a substitute for the proper COVID vaccine. Uh, But this is a surprising finding nonetheless, and it could have implications for places around the world that have constrained resources. Um, And in those situations, this may be a helpful thing uh, if we can validate it with randomized controlled trials. Well, and to your question question about the mechanism, we... uh, We do know that the flu vaccine will not give you antibodies to COVID, uh, but it could upregulate the other part of the immune system, which is the nonspecific or the innate side, uh, and you might get some protection through that pathway. You know, you were talking about uh, other countries, but let me uh, circle back to this one, where, as you know, there are a lot of people 
who are not getting the vaccine. In fact, the CDC is just reporting today that the vaccination rate has dropped rather dramatically uh, from uh, April. And some of the people who don't want to get the the uh, COVID shots are saying, well, it's experimental. We don't we don't trust it. All those other things Um, for those people and perhaps those people alone, recognizing what you're saying, that it's not a substitute for a true COVID shot. Might it not be a bad idea for them to at least get the flu shot because that's not experimental and we know a lot about how those shots work? You know, that's a very, a very good point. And uh, beyond the word experimental, I, I would say that the flu vaccine just has a much longer track record of safety. That doesn't mean that the COVID vaccine is not safe. It's gone through rigorous testing as well. It's just not been around as long, not nearly as long. And so your point is well taken. And if one of the side effects of this is that more people get the flu vaccine, that's great. Because, of course, as you know, pandemics have also been caused by the flu itself. The last thing we want is a twindemic in the future, a flu and COVID or some other respiratory pandemic at the same time. So by all means, if uh, this results in more people getting the flu vaccination, that's a, that's a great result. Dr. Devinder Singh, professor of clinical surgery, University of Miami. Israel offering a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine to severely immunocompromised adults in what health experts say could be the first phase of an experiment to provide booster shots to certain groups of people. This comes as Pfizer's looking for U.S. approval for a third shot. With us is Deborah Fuller, vaccine developer, microbiologist at the University of Washington. So, Deborah, help us sort this out since Israel's moving forward, but the U.S. is uh, still cautious. Yeah, there, there are two things that really drive the need for a booster immunization. As you know, we do get booster immunizations every year for, for influenza, for example. And the two things that really drive that, one is waning immunity, so which is what you know, we're kind of talking about here. Uh, but also the other is the emergence of new variants that could potentially evade um, the, the immunity induced by your vaccine. So we're sort of coming up in the terms of months of time, a potential where we might start to see our immunity to the vaccine start to wane concurrent with the emergence of new variants uh, that are proving to be somewhat more resistant to our vaccines. Now, with that said, this Delta variant, as an example, is one that's spreading worldwide. We've learned that the vaccines are still very, very effective against the Delta variant. Uh, one reason for that is that they raise very robust immune responses. And so even though they take a little bit of a hit because the Delta variant is able to yeah, you know, it's not as effectively neutralized. We have so much antibodies in our body as a result of that vaccination. We're still able to deal with the Delta variant. Uh, if you're healthy, you know, if you're um, a healthy adult who generates really good immune responses. So what Israel is talking about doing is actually uh, boosting individuals who are immune compromised. And we already know from a number of studies that immune compromised individuals, say somebody who recently got a transplant, for example, uh, tend to respond much less well to vaccinations. So they're not going to generate that high level of antibody in their body. And so they, concurrent with the emergence of a new variant, they will likely be, still be uh, more vulnerable to these uh, new emerging variants just simply because they didn't raise high, as high an antibody in the first place and their immune responses can wane more quickly. So in, in many respects, it makes sense 
that they would target that demographic. If we, yeah, if we see it here eventually, is it going to be right now kind of like what it is in Israel? It's just a third dose of the one we already got. So you get your two and then you get a third. Or is this the idea to tailor a new vaccine and then get that one? as your third. Yeah, it's, it, it's basically both right now. It's like they're just going to boost them with the same one they have because they have that manufactured. But as we're speaking right now, all of the uh, companies producing vaccines are in the process already of, of uh, updating the vaccine to match a variant because obviously that's going to be uh, even more effective in terms of you know, emergence of these new variants. But we've also had uh, a number of experts on this show in the past few weeks who are unconvinced, who have said, you know, there are some indications that these vaccines are so effective that for the otherwise healthy individual, the immunity may last for perhaps years. Yeah, yeah. And one thing we don't know is really how long it's going to last. I think that's a that is a really good point. Uh, that as adults, as we're seeing, we're seeing the even if we see immunity wane a bit, it has. It's not like a cliff where it just falls off and it's gone. Uh, we have pretty good immunity even out to. You know, I think we're out to six to eight months after uh, immunization for for some of the people who first got the immunizations. I think it's really important to 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 recognize that what's probably even more important is ensuring that the world's population gets at least the first two shots because as long as we've got, you know, I think we've got about 11% of the world vaccinated right now, which isn't enough. And as long as we've got pocket of people somewhere in the world who are not getting their vaccines at all, we're going to get an emergence of yet another variant. And then so this playbook starts all over again. The uh, Johnson Johnson shot is getting another warning uh, put on it. It looks like what what do people need to know about that? Yeah, so this is Guillain-Barre uh, syndrome, which is basically uh, what that is, is, is just a, uh, where a rare disorder in which the body's immune system will, will attack your nerves and it creates sort of weak, weakness and tingling in, in the face. And it can be extreme to the point of causing uh, uh, hospitalization. Now, with that said, you know, the, the frequency that they're seeing this, they're seeing, starting to see some association with the adenovirus vaccines, not just the J&J, but there have been reported uh, similar sorts of associations with the AstraZeneca. Now, this is not entirely surprising because Guillain-Barre is actually a symptom that is actually associated with viral infections, uh, RNA viral infections in general, including COVID-19. There's a you know reasonable rate of people who have gotten COVID-19 who also experience the same syndrome. So, so the AstraZeneca and the J&J vaccines, they're viral vectored vaccines. And so they can potentially stimulate some nonspecific responses that can temporarily uh, cause this, uh, this, uh, this um, uh, disease. Um, you know, most of the people will recover from it, um, but it is something serious enough that it, it warrants, you know, a, a warning of this sort. Well, and, and you know that there are people who have either already gotten the J&J or or perhaps it's it's the one that that is the most readily available to them to get who are concerned, uh, you know, that it's an inferior shot to the uh, uh, Pfizer and Moderna ones. And now they're going to look at this bit of news and go, aha, you see, there's another yeah. reason not to get it. But that isn't true, is it? No, not necessarily. So, so I mean, this is very rare. Uh, I mean, there's hundreds of millions of people who have received this vaccine with no no issues at all associated with that. And and there is a lot of benefit to uh, to 
certain uh, populations be able to get a one-and-done vaccine uh, because in many cases, some people can't return for second immunization. So what's really important to understand is that getting the vaccine is is the the, uh, benefits in terms of protecting you from COVID, which, by the way, as a reminder, that can cause Guillain-Barre, getting COVID-19, is so much worse uh, than, than not getting the vaccine. So the benefits far, far outweigh the risks. Deborah Fuller, vaccine developer, microbiologist, University of Washington. Coming up after this short break, you might think your commute is terrible, but don't you feel more relaxed when you get home? People are going back to work, and that means more cars on the road. No one ever says they like their commute, but a couple of studies find your commute can actually help you decompress. Now, it sounds strange if you're bumper to bumper. Blake Ashforth is a professor at uh, the Arizona State University W.P. Carey School of Business. He co-authored a study on the benefits of commuting. Also, we have Dr. Chris Giza, pediatric neurologist at UCLA, did his own fake commutes during the pandemic. Uh, Blake, let's start with you. The idea people can switch here from work mode to home mode, that's kind of what this is about. Yeah, it does two things for you. One is it allows you to literally leave your home both physically and mentally. So it kind of allows you to kind of disengage from whatever's going on in your home life and then start thinking ahead to what's at work. Also, too, though, if the commute's at all relaxing, and your traffic stories don't suggest they are, <laughs> but if all relaxing, it gives you a chance to kind of just, yeah, decompress, let your mind roam freely. In fact, some of our most creative thoughts are when we're not trying to think of anything. We're literally in this thing called a liminal state. You're neither here nor there. You're in between. When you're in a liminal state, your mind is free to kind of roam. Yeah, Mike and, and so, I can attest to that. <laughs> Our most creative thoughts is when we think of nothing. Yes. Most of the show, I'm just here existing. <laughs> Chris, uh, uh, what does it mean that you did a fake commute? What's a fake commute? Well, as we, you know, during the pandemic, as we were working more from home, um, you realize that something's missing at sort of the beginning or end of your day. Um, I often would bike to work or back, so I integrated uh, just biking out of home and then coming back to home uh, before I started my day, and that provided a little exercise, a mental break, um, and then I actually found a couple of colleagues who would do it with me, so I'd also incorporate a little bit of socialization, so we called it a fake commute because we weren't really biking to work anymore, or we were biking away from home and then back to home, uh, but it, it helped provide that um, little in-between that allows you to clear your brain a little bit. Which is a nice name for it, but isn't it just exercise at the end of the day? <laughs> well, I guess it can be, depending <laughs> on what you're doing during it, but I, I think, you know, one of the things that you think about when you're commuting, or at least what I think about, aside from, you know, on the way in, you're thinking about, well, what, what do we have to do for the day and what's the priorities? And then sometimes on the way home, you're thinking about just kind of processing all the stuff that happened during the day so that you can you know, reintegrate with your family. It's much more jarring if you're on a Zoom meeting in your office at home and then you come out of it right into something that's going on in the family with no time to transition. So I think it, in that aspect, it does serve a, as a commute as opposed to just All right. exercise. With there it is. There's the difference. Yeah, the reset. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I see. Well, and, 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 and over back to you, uh, Blake, and talking about uh, sort of a reset, it's a reset of personalities too, isn't it? Because we, most of us are different at home than we are at work. Well, that's exactly right. You're a different person, and it's not easy to slip from one to the other. So the commute kind of gives you that time to, to shake off one and assume the other, kind of like putting on a shirt. You're taking off your home shirt and putting on your work shirt. 
As you do that mentally, you actually become somewhat of a different person. You're thinking different things, different goals, different values. And so, yes, it can change your mindset. And you need to do that to be effective in each role. You do the reverse commute coming home, same thing, right? Leave the work be home and come, come back to your home refreshed. And so to do that, you've got to reset both in both directions. Is this just for people, though, who, who do have a nice ride? Because around here, you can be hard-pressed to find it. But, like, I can think back to, like, high school, and I think maybe that's when I enjoyed driving in because I could do I, – I got five or six songs on the way in. That was relaxing. And, of course, when I got to high school, though, I had zero responsibility. I wasn't working. So who, who does this work for if someone's listening to this right now and they go, well, this is not uh, going to happen in my life? The more relaxed your commute, the better it is for you, obviously, right? So if you're fighting traffic all the way – Yes, you're still doing the transition, which is a good thing mentally, but you arrive so stressed and overwrought that it, it kind of undoes a lot of the good. If you have a more relaxing drive, you're on a commuter train, or like Chris, you're able to bike in, or like me too, I bike in. Uh, that's a whole different world, right? It truly is a more relaxing experience. But Chris, I'm, I'm curious, do you feel differently though psychologically now, because I presume you're still biking to work uh, now that you're actually leaving your home. Do you feel though different when you have to really go to a place to work as opposed to when you knew that you were kind of, you know, going on bike, but you were going back home. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it's become a habit. And so now what I'm working on is, can I reintegrate these benefits into my real commute as we're getting out of lockdown? And, you know, I think one of the things I notice is it still saves me time uh, riding to work and showering at work is less time than, doing a workout, showering, and then driving back and forth in traffic. Um, it seems like there are more bike riders still out on the road. So even though cars are back, I think there's a noticeable number of folks in the cars are more bike aware and even a little bit courteous when we get to stop signs and things like that. So I, I, I see that there's uh, some potential for me to be able to keep doing this even as we come out of lockdown, and I hope so. All right, Chris Giza, pediatric neurologist, UCLA. Blake Ashforth, professor at the Arizona State University W.P. Carey School of Business. That whole thing about changing personalities is, are you different at work than you are at, at home? I think so, yeah. You are? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm the same charming person. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. A 90-year-old woman in Belgium went to the hospital, got tested for COVID. She ended up dying five days later. It turned out she was infected with Two variants of COVID, the Alpha and Beta variants, formerly known as the UK and South African variants. The hospital says both of these variants were circulating in Belgium at the time, so it is likely the woman was co-infected with different viruses from two different people. While the case is being seen as the first confirmed instance of a double infection, researchers say that similar cases have been reported. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.